<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ida Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin. Let's start with a story of great import and export. China's exports and imports remained strong in October, suggesting healthy demand in the world's second largest economy, this despite government efforts to cool the housing market and curb industrial production to reduce pollution. The figures were released hours before Donald Trump arrived in China on the third leg of his Asia tour last week. Trade and the U.S.'s sizable deficit with China were among the very top issues of Trump's discussion with President Xi Jinping. More on Trump and Xi in a bit. Profit for China's Twitter-like microblogging platform Weibo more than tripled to a record 100 million U.S. dollars in the third quarter, reflecting strong growth throughout the country's social media scene. Weibo's revenue rose 80 percent to 320 million U.S. dollars from a year before, with advertising and marketing services accounting for nearly 90 percent of that. Weibo has sought to reach users in smaller cities by improving the performance of its app on cheaper smartphones and by localizing content, the company said. Speaking of smartphones, Oppo gained ground on Huawei in the Chinese smartphone market during the third quarter as the former tried to regain the title of top dog in the world's largest smartphone market. At the same time, U.S. giant Apple recaptured some ground, ending two years of decline in a market that accounts for about a fifth of its global sales. And Xiaomi continued its own climb back up through the ranks of China's top brands, posting the strongest gains of any major player in its fledgling turnaround story. And in books, shares of Tencent's online publishing unit, China Literature, doubled in price during its Hong Kong debut. The unit runs an online bookselling platform through Tencent's popular WeChat messaging app, offering 10 million titles by 6 million authors, including some of the country's super popular online serial novels like the fantasy series Grave Robbers Chronicles and the romance To Our Youth That Is Fading Away, which has been turned into a TV series and film, respectively. In booze news, a Chinese liquor maker is facing accusations of misleading consumers after it helped promote a study suggesting that its products have health benefits. The study, published by Jiangnan University in eastern China, asserted that the Chinese liquor Baijiu contains elements that can prevent cancer. The study specifically pointed to the Baijiu of distiller Guizhou Dongjiu, 
saying the company's booze had the largest amount of an anti-carcinogenic chemical among the 14 competitors that it surveyed. Guizhou Dongzhou promoted the study on its website and went a step further saying its baijiu is antiseptic, antiviral, anti-cancer, anti-blood clotting, and can help reduce cholesterol. Netizens in China's scientific community quickly called their bluff, and the firm and the university may face penalties. So I know it's surprising, but for the record, Baijiu is probably not a health remedy. And finally, in politics, China says it has mapped out a new blueprint with the U.S. to remain partners, not rivals, during President Donald Trump's two-night state visit to Beijing last week. At a lavish banquet Thursday night, the two dined on popular Chinese dishes, including kung pao chicken, or gong bao jiding, tender beefsteak stewed in a tomato broth, as well as locally produced Great Wall wine, which may or may not have health benefits. The two leaders also presided over the signing of $250 billion U.S. in business deals covering a number of industries. Among the largest deals saw Chinese investors taking stakes in energy development projects in the U.S., and China's pledge to buy 300 aircraft from Boeing. Thanks, Ada. For more on this, let's talk to Caixin senior editor Doug Young. Doug, for anyone who may have been living under a rock for the last week, what's the story here? Okay, yeah, you're right. Anybody who is on planet Earth probably read about this, but maybe there are a few people out there who didn't. Uh, this was Donald Trump's first visit to China and his second meeting with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. The first meeting being not long after Trump became president, I think it was in March or April, Trump invited Xi to his Mar-a-Lago vacation home in Florida. And everybody said, you know, this was supposed to be a bit of a, a privilege, you know, taking him to his personal home, vacation home. And it seems like the Chinese tried to reciprocate in their own fashion. Trump came here really just for a day. And I think that was deliberately made that way. Uh, he stopped for longer in Japan and Korea and China was his third stop. So this was, you know, meant to show Japan comes first, Korea second. We stay longer at those places. China, eh, you know, we come here too, but it's probably just worth a day trip. That said, the tone seems to have been as cordial as, as it was at Mar-a-Lago. So that's a positive sign. Seems like Trump and Xi seem to be able to talk the same language. North Korea was definitely high on the agenda, but they didn't really say all that much about that on there are a lot of little details that people picked up on, one being uh, that Trump became the first foreign leader in Chinese history to dine at the Forbidden City, which is obviously a highly symbolic thing. It's uh, you know, where the emperors lived in the past, China's probably most recognized landmark after the Great Wall. So that was a big deal. And then uh, I noticed that Trump actually changed his uh, headshot on Twitter to basically a shot of something he was doing in China. So you know, Twitter is his trademark way of communicating with the people. So for him to do something like that is probably seen by some as a symbolic gesture. You know, I would say on the whole, the, the tone seemed to be cordial. I think Xi Jinping, at least superficially, you know, really wants to try and be friends with the U.S., improve the relationship. And, you know, he knows he's got a tough sell because Trump has been very vocal about uh, a lot of the issues with the U.S.-China relationship in the past. Well, well, sure, Doug, I certainly agree. But don't you think the effusive praise of Xi by Trump went maybe just a little bit overboard? I mean, the whole, I don't blame China for unfair trade practices. I blame past administrations, that, that thing. Um, I mean, we saw this similar in Mar-a-Lago. They both were very cordial. You know, I think they're both businessmen. They want to do the deal. And part of the whole negotiating tactic is you got to talk tough. 
But again, you've got to you know, express a certain level of goodwill. And Trump was probably being sincere, you know, when he's saying you didn't create this problem. You know, this was created over decades, not by just the Chinese leaders, but by U.S. leaders who maybe were just too permissive and Chinese leaders who just wanted to export at all costs and so forth. So he's trying to be realistic. And, you know, this might take us into our next topic, which was all these deals that were signed during the thing, because one of the big things is this big trade imbalance. Uh, there are two sort of big issues. One is the trade imbalance, and then the other one is access to uh, Chinese markets for foreign companies. But we saw at least the announcement of a lot of big deals, uh, and most of them were Chinese companies buying U.S. products on this trip. So let's dive a little deeper into that. Uh, give us a sense of how large were these deals, and then maybe tell us what specific industries or companies were actually involved or will benefit? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I mean, they obviously came with a big shopping list. And, and we did a little bit of analysis over here at Caixin to see, you know, which sectors benefited the most. And if you look at it, energy is far and away, you know, the biggest beneficiary of this, which doesn't come as a huge surprise because China really wants Western know-how, especially with things like shale, gas, and and also it, it wants to get more natural gas in general because it's trying to wean itself off of coal. So energy, according to Trump's tally, accounted for about $150 billion out of $250 billion in deals that were signed on this trip. The number's a little bit misleading because two of the deals were both very big, but they were actually using the size of the cost of the project. One was a big natural gas development project in Alaska, and the other one was a shale gas project in West Virginia. And each of those were in the tens of billions of dollars, but obviously China's not going to foot that entire bill. Uh, so China, you know, will help with some of that. So it was a little bit misleading. But I think if you look at the numbers, energy was definitely one of the big ones. The other big one was probably aviation. Aviation, uh, you know, just is sort of a standard. They just took all the recent Boeing orders <laughs> and, and lumped them all together, and that was it. So I'd say those agriculture was, was sort of a big winner. Uh, you know, China buys a lot of U.S. soybeans. And I think we got two big commitments coming from JD.com, the online e-commerce marketplace, which made multi-billion dollar commitments to buy U.S. beef and pork. So I, I'd say those were some of the, the big winners in that area. So let's move now to the second story you wanted to chat with us about, and this one is about KFC. Okay, this one is actually a fun story, and it has a lot of meaning for me personally, because I was actually part of this story many years ago. The story is that KFC just celebrated its 30th anniversary in China, and 30... It's not a small number, but in China, it's really a big number, because China's only been in sort of its current capitalist mode for arguably about 30 years, maybe 35, if you want to turn it up a little more. So KFC was really one of the first major Western consumer brands to come to China, and certainly the first major Western restaurant operator to come to China. And this, they opened their first store in just uh, south of Tiananmen Square in 1987. And like I said, this has a little bit of personal feeling for me, because I was actually living in Beijing in, in 1987. I was just out of college, and I was teaching at a university, and let me tell you, there was no Western food in China at all. And so when KFC opened, it was, today it just sounds ridiculous, but it was really a breath of fresh air for the Western community in, in China, you know, just to have a, a taste from home. 
Yeah, I remember being in Beijing in 1988 and uh, making the occasional pilgrimage to visit the Colonel. Uh, you must have some memories too, yeah? Yeah, I mean, there are the personal memories. And then, there, I mean, the personal memories was that I, I just remember it was a long way from our school and we, we went everywhere on bikes back then. So it was really over an hour bike ride to get to KFC. And I remember it's like you bike an hour, an hour and 15 minutes eat your half hour meal and then bike another hour and 15 minutes back. So, you know, you're talking quite a lot of pedal power for a taste of home. But I I think that, you know, the bigger picture of this story, too, is just how cutting edge they were. I mean, they really, when the history books are written, you know, KFC is going to go down as probably one of the companies that really revolutionized the Chinese dining scene, uh, because the, the dining scene in China, back when KFC came in, was just abysmal. It was essentially a socialist past where service was terrible, food quality was real spotty. People didn't go out to eat very much at all anyhow. Uh, And, you know, KFC really came in. They offered nice clean dining environment, fast service, friendly service, which was hard to come by back then. You know, and just standardization, you know, they made sure that every meal you came would be the same, you know, or or comparable quality, which you just couldn't get in China back then. So do they they still dwarf McDonald's in China? I mean, I seem to remember that they're they're substantially larger. Yeah, they're still the the leader in China. I think they have more than 5,000 stores in China compared to McDonald's. I think they're like one or 2,000. They're way ahead but they're definitely coming up against issues. As China's developed, the dining scene has just become much more Western, like in terms of people are willing to pay more. You know, back in those days, in the first days, a meal at KFC cost maybe quarter of a monthly salary. You know, nowadays it's an hour's salary, you know, which is much more similar to the West. But the other thing too is that now people are much more health conscious. They have a lot more choices, obviously. So KFC, they've got a lot of stores, but they've also got a lot more competition. And they really have gone a bit down market in terms of the kinds of people they attract. You know, they used to really attract the Sunday, you know, dressed up in your Sunday best and the creme de la creme because it was the hot spot to go. And now it's sort of like the grannies and their their little toddlers, you know, trying to kill some time, sitting in the store eating, you know, a, a cup of soy milk for an hour. So they're trying to revamp their image a little bit, and they're going a little more upscale like McDonald's with higher-end coffee and a lot of high-tech features and so forth. Well, far and away, my favorite thing about KFC in China has always been the Macanese-style egg custard tarts, the danta, uh, which are absolutely delicious, I mean, to the surprise of many people. I really miss those things. Anyway, Doug, great chatting with you as always, and we will see you next week. Okay, thanks a lot, Kaiser. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SupChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show that I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care. <laughs>